This morning we will be looking at the last half of Daniel chapter 2. Our text is chapter 2, verse 31 through 49. But I'm going to begin the reading of God's Word a few verses up at verse 27. If you please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king is asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay on the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they do not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made this known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given to us this your word. And we ask even now, O Lord, that you would remind us of all of the blessings that you give to us, all of the wisdom that you give to us. We ask, Lord, that this wisdom would take root in our life, that it would make us changed people, that we would be affected by the truth of your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And you can imagine that even perhaps if the wise men had heard this dream of a statue made of different materials and of a rock and of threshing floor uh, chaff, that even if they had known it earlier in the chapter, that they would have had great difficulty in interpreting it. You do recall, though, that before, Nebuchadnezzar refused to even tell anyone the dream. He kept it all to himself Because he was convinced that others would simply make up an interpretation. He was about to kill all of the wise men, including Daniel and his friends. Until Daniel went before the Lord God in prayer. He called a prayer meeting with his three compatriots. And the Lord opened up the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And so here we have the dream and its interpretation. And it's important that we have it because if we didn't, we might think this was merely a case of God showing his providence in saving one of his children, Daniel. That the whole purpose of all of this was simply to reveal to Daniel the dream so that he might not be killed. And perhaps we might think on with the end of this chapter that another main purpose of it would be to advance Daniel in the kingdom. Now, both of these things are true and they both happen. But they are coincidental to what God is doing here in this dream. God has placed Daniel in this position and in the position he has at court because God is desiring to speak to Nebuchadnezzar 
to the nations and to us. He wants to tell us of what is to come. And unlike as often is done with Daniel or the book of Ezekiel or the book of Revelation, I believe that God is not trying to show us intimate details of the future. This is not a book of history written beforehand. God is seeking to show us the principles of how the world works and how He is at work in the world. But so what I would like us to see here this morning are three things. First, we will look at this image, this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. We will see the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we will see the rock, that is, the rock of God. First, we will look at the image, and then we will look at the rock. And then we will look at both of these things together and see how we are to respond to God's kingdom. Responding to the kingdom of God. Well, let's look first then at this image of Nebuchadnezzar. The first thing we need to think about is, what is the reason for this dream? We need to remind ourselves. And the reason for this dream is that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the mightiest empire in all of the world, is discontent. We might even say he's afraid. You recall last week we compared Nebuchadnezzar to a child who doesn't like it when you switch off the nightlight in the room. They're afraid of the dark. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing, which is very odd to us because he is the most powerful man in the world. But it's a reminder to us that even when we have everything we think we need, we are still not at rest. You see, that's the irony of seeking comfort in things. You spend half of your life struggling and striving to get them, and then the other half struggling and striving to hold on to them. And you're never content. That's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. You see, the reason for this dream and Nebuchadnezzar's discontent is that God is at work here. God's purpose is about to be revealed to us. Now, what I want us to do is not focus too much on the details. And by that I mean the details, really, that don't even exist in this dream. We will look at the various portions of the statue. We will see that they very likely relate to various kingdoms throughout history. But what I don't want us to do, for example, is to think, well, there's feet of clay, and clay have toes, or feet have toes, so there must be ten toes. So the ten toes must mean something. And, of course, toes have toenails. So what would clay toenails mean? And feet have ankles. So what could be an ankle? No, We don't see any of that here. We're not going to go off on a flight of fancy. We're not going to try and find something that God has not revealed. We're going to focus on the main message, which really is quite simple if we think about it. Look with me at verse 27. Or excuse me, verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king what will be in the latter days. And again in verse 47, Truly, your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. This is a mystery that God has set up so that he might reveal it, so that he might impress upon us what he has to say. So that's the reason for the dream. 
But what is this dream all about? It's kind of a, a frightening picture. There have been many drawings, paintings, woodcuts, etc. made of this statue. And you probably already have an idea in your mind's eye of what this statue looks like. But what I want first you to understand in the big picture is there is but one statue. Keep that in mind. There are not four statues. There are not five. There's not ten. There is merely one image. It is of one piece. It has differing parts, but it is one great image. It is an image that is fearful. It is brilliant and bright. And its brightness strikes fear in the hearts of men. This image is a picture of the kingdom of men. You'll notice I said kingdom, not kingdoms. It is one image to set forth the kingdom of man as it goes throughout God's providence of history. The first part of this image that we see is, of course, the gold head. And this is the easiest thing to interpret. Don't you love being able to interpret the scriptures when the scriptures give you the answer? Well, what's the gold head? Well, Daniel tells us this gold head is Babylon. It is King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, notice also how in the interpretation, the king is identified with the kingdom. The gold head is both Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. The king represents And the fact that we are given this information is an aid to the rest of our interpretation of the statue. But I want to dwell for a moment on this kingdom of Babylon, this gold head, this image. Look with me at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Perhaps even hearing me read that makes you a bit uncomfortable. It conjures up images of the book of Revelation, and adjectives, and phrases that are used of God himself. Much power and authority is in Nebuchadnezzar's hands. But notice where that power and authority comes from. It comes from God. It's not a mandate from the people. It doesn't come from his father. It doesn't come from his army. All of the might and glory and power of this kingdom of man come from God himself. And it is God who has delivered into Nebuchadnezzar's hand this mighty list. The children of man, wherever they dwell. The beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, all of them are subject to Nebuchadnezzar. This language should also remind you of something else. Not at the end of the Bible, but at the beginning of the Bible. This is the language that's used to describe the dominion of Adam. Nebuchadnezzar is in Adam-like authority. And like Adam, he can fall from this authority. He has all of these things under his power. Because God has placed it there. Now, I want you to also remember one thing. As we go through the dream and we see what is about to happen, the destruction of this statue, 
you need to realize that this dream would sound to Nebuchadnezzar, even in all of the goodness of the gold image and the power and the authority, like if someone walked up to you and said, I have a sure word from God, the United States will be destroyed. And it will be replaced by an inferior kingdom. And God has made that sure. Would that take you back a bit? Would it take you back a bit more if all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your purpose was invested in the United States? You might think to yourself, well, what could come next? What could there possibly be? There can't be anything that could replace the United States. Our Constitution is like nothing we've ever seen. Our society is like nothing that has ever been seen. What could possibly come after us? You see, Nebuchadnezzar might have those same thoughts. His kingdom was mighty, powerful. But there is another kingdom that replaces it. A kingdom of silver. It is the arms and chest of this statue. And so we begin to move down from the head, and there is obvious imagery of inferiority. If I offered you a small bar of gold or a small bar of silver, which would you take? Well, if you've been watching the market, you would take the bar of gold. It's valued at, at any given time between 10 and 20 times the value of silver. And this has been true throughout the ages. Silver is not as good as gold. But this is still a powerful kingdom. It is a kingdom that is inferior, but it is a kingdom that is strong and powerful. And I believe that the best way to interpret this kingdom is to think of the Persian Empire. The empire of Darius that we will see in a few chapters that Daniel will serve. Because it is an empire that followed Babylon. It is an empire that was not as wide as in, in its extent. And it also was not as unified as Babylon. You see, historians even talk about it as the Medo-Persian Empire. Because there were the Medes and there were the Persians, and they came together to form one empire. Two arms we might think of. This is the silver chest and arms. And then the dream begins to describe a bronze middle and thighs. Strength yet still a bit more inferior in terms of its unity. And this, I believe, is the Greek Empire. The Empire of Alexander the Great and his generals. An empire that was less unified than both Babylon and Persia because it was made up of a bunch of warring city-states. And it was only the sheer might and power of Alexander that could bring it together for a short period of time. And as soon as he was dead, it broke immediately off into pieces, and afterwards continued to degenerate. But it was indeed an empire that stretched over the known world. It stretched over the earth. It ruled over, verse 39, the whole earth. This is the Greek empire. And then we move down to the legs of iron. And this, I believe, is the empire of Rome. Rome is the strongest of these empires, just as iron is the strongest of metals. But it is an even more disunified political entity. Rome was very weak in terms of its unity. It had Germanic tribes that it fought on the border and sometimes came into the Roman Empire. 
And they never were able to really ever unify. They were constantly fighting off each other. They were constantly having internal difficulties. And yet at the same time, they were incredibly mighty and powerful, shattering the known world. The Roman historian Tacitus puts this line in the speech, in the mouth of a barbarian king in Scotland. He says that the Romans make a desert and call it peace. That was the Roman Empire. It wiped out everything that it came across. You've heard of the phrase being decimated. You know, that originates with the Romans. And it doesn't mean to be wiped out. It means that you go down a line of men and you count to ten. And when you get to the tenth person, you kill him. And then you count again to ten. And when you get to ten, you kill him. And this is how you deal with your enemies. Your enemies revolt against you. You don't hold trials in federal court. You kill everyone. And you salt their fields. And you throw boulders in their farmland. So that not only will they not live there, but no one will ever live there again. So we see here kind of a degeneration of unity, but we see an increase in power. But one thing is constant. These are all kingdoms of men. They succeed each other. They have different names. They have different customs. But they all seek power the same way. Through might. Through their own authority. This is a great theme here of the statue. It is the kingdom of man. So what then happens to this statue? To this kingdom? Something very interesting, and interesting enough to really shock Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. This statue is awe-inspiring, it is brilliant, it is filled with precious metals. But what happens is, a stone, a small stone that is not cut with hands, it is not made with hands, comes onto the scene. Now what does this mean? It means first it's... It's as if it's a small boulder or a small pebble. It is not something that was carved out to perfect shape like stone would be in this day. You've seen pictures or been places where you've seen great buildings of marble where all of the stone is cut perfectly. Perhaps you've watched documentaries on the pyramids. You see what man can do with cut stone. But this stone, this isn't cut. It's not fashioned. It's not even significant to man. It just simply arises. It is not cut with hands. And this stone is not any stone because it is indeed a stone without human hands. It is made by God. Because this stone comes and strikes the image, destroys it, and then becomes a great mountain. What does this mean? It means that God is beginning to establish His kingdom in the place of the kingdom of man. God is creating a kingdom that is unshakable, as we saw in our call to worship. God is creating a kingdom that is everlasting. He is saying that the kingdom of man cannot replace the kingdom of God, even as He did when He destroyed the Tower of Babel. It is a stone that is made without hand, and it is established by him. Look at verse 44. 
And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. God is the one who establishes this. Do you acknowledge that? Do you acknowledge that all power and authority comes from God? Not just power and authority in kingdoms, but power and authority in your life. Fathers, do you acknowledge that the authority you have in the home is not because you are smarter than your wife, or tougher or bigger than your children? It is because God has endowed you with that stewardship of authority. Parents, do you acknowledge that the blessing you have of children is not because you made wise decisions or because you have it all together, but rather because God has endowed you with that stewardship and that authority? All authority we have comes from God. It is a kingdom that is unshakable. It starts small. It is a stone that is really of no value. It's not cut. It's not useful. But it grows. It's nothing to speak of when it starts. It's obscure and it's weak. But in the end, it becomes a great mountain. It reminds us of another picture that our Lord Jesus Christ used to describe the kingdom of God. Perhaps you remember it. The story of the mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, but grows into what? The greatest of all trees. You see, the kingdom of God sometimes starts small in our sight. But it is ever-growing. And it dominates all of God's creation. This is purposeful. This is not a coincidence. The other thing that I want you to notice here about the kingdom of God is that it is on earth. You know, oftentimes we need to dispel common wisdom. Common knowledge. Common knowledge sometimes makes us think that we will spend eternity upon clouds with wings plucking harps. Now, as much as I enjoy Susanna and Haley, I don't believe that is where we are headed for all eternity. Because you see, the Scripture says that the kingdom of God is a tangible kingdom where we will have bodies, glorified bodies, but bodies. It is God reconquering, retaking, reestablishing the earth through His kingdom. And if we think about that, that gives us our calling card as His ambassadors. We are not simply biding our time here on earth, waiting until we can get a good seat on a cloud. But rather, we are a part of the instruments that God is using to establish Maintain and expand His kingdom here on earth. What we do matters. The way you conduct your life matters. The way you speak of the Lord matters. The efforts you take to build the kingdom matter. Not in your own strength, but as we see the Holy Spirit building up through us the kingdom of God. This is an important fact. That this kingdom is unshakable. But it is more than unshakable. It is also unstoppable. You see, the world, and sometimes the Christian, tends to look at the kingdom of God like other kingdoms. Well, 
You know, you can always come to a point where the tanks run out of gas. You can always come to a point where you run out of bullets. Or you can't borrow any more money. There's always something that can stop or slow down the kingdom. And you see, that is true of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, of Britain, of France, of China, and of the United States. But it is not true of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is unstoppable ever going forward. Do you notice that this stone grows and is established throughout all of these kingdoms? Remember, there is one statue. It's not as if during the time of the Babylonians, God went on vacation. And he said, well, I don't have to be back at work till the Romans come around. It's not as if during the Persian Empire, God forgot his people. We see that in the book of Esther. He was very involved by his providence. It's not as if during the Greek Empire, God was asleep at the switch. We might even say that the entire purpose of the Greek Empire was to expand throughout all of the known world and to make the language of Greece the known language of the entire world simply so that God could write his New Testament in that language. So that everyone from Spain to Afghanistan, could read the Scriptures. God was at work. His kingdom is running parallel with all of these kingdoms, and it destroys all of them. Look with me, if you would, at verse 43 and 44. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, which kings? Not the kings of the ten toes that don't exist. Not the kings of the ankle. No, the kings of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. This is the unstoppable nature of the kingdom of God. All of these kings are no match for God. Does that give you Great comfort and hope. Because you know, the Communist Party of China is no match for God. Pirates and warlords in Africa are no match for God. Even those in our very nation who would shake their fist against God and say He doesn't exist and I don't even care if He does no match for God. You see, the kingdom of God will surpass all of these kingdoms. It will destroy them. It will break them in pieces. And this shouldn't surprise us because the kingdom of man is simply the gathering together of men. Of men taking their individual sinful and weak nature and collaborating together. This should remind you of other imagery in the Psalms. 
As this stone strikes the statue, and all of these things, including the metal, are driven away like the chaff before the wind. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me very briefly to the book of Psalms. The very first psalm, actually. In which it describes how the blessedness of the man is found in delighting in the law of the Lord. And how the Lord knows the way of His righteous. But the wicked, verse 4, are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see, the end of human kingdoms is the end of all of those who oppose God. They will be destroyed. This is an uncomfortable thought, but it is reality. And it is such an important reality that God breaks into history to reveal to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, the nature of authority in the world. It's something that our Lord Jesus Christ understood full well. For in Luke chapter 20, he says this at verse 17. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Referring to himself, saying that the Jews had rejected him, and now he is the cornerstone. But look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Our Lord is quoting Daniel chapter 2. You see... Daniel chapter 2 is not just about empires that come and go in the night. It's not just about some kings that you read about in musty old books. Daniel chapter 2 is about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in establishing His kingdom, in putting down rebellion, and in gathering His people to Himself. Does that thrill your soul? Because that's what it's about. It's about the establishment of God's kingdom here on earth. It's a kingdom that is completely unstoppable. And this is the critical task of the church to proclaim this kingdom, to proclaim what God is doing in establishing his kingdom. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is to do. The kingdom is unstoppable. We have seen the image of Nebuchadnezzar and we've looked at the rock of God. And so then lastly, let us think about what our response should be to the kingdom. Now, it is not without purpose that this image of the rock has been chosen. The Bible speaks not only of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, but it speaks of God as our rock. There is a great identity, just like in the golden head, between the king and the kingdom. And so if we think about it, the first thing that happens in terms of the world's response to God is a response of respect. Look here at the end of chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel and he said, Truly, your God is a God of gods. Now, our first reaction might be to get all excited. Somebody hand Nebuchadnezzar a commitment card. So that he can sign off. He's a believer now, right? He's going to establish the temple. He's going to show that God is the only true God. No. 
That becomes very clear next week in chapter 3. But let's not forget, though, that there is a response of respect, but it is a respect for authority and power, not for the nature of God. Nebuchadnezzar appreciates that God has knowledge and wisdom. He appreciates that God has power. He almost looks at God as a rival king, or perhaps one who is in the club of kings. But he will not acknowledge that God alone is God. And if we think about it, is it very different today? Will anyone out in the world get upset if you describe to them how someone you knew was sick and you prayed and they were made well? They won't get upset, will they? No. If you tell them things from Proverbs about how they should raise their children, if you give them instruction about how you, we should treat others as we wish to be, treat, to be treated, there's no one that gets upset with that. But the minute you say, there is only one way to be right with God. The minute you say, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The minute you say, there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. Then people get upset. Don't they? Are you in a place where you got upset when I just said that? Do you think, well, I can't possibly imagine that my neighbor who is so nice to me and so helpful and bakes things for me and brings me things when I'm sick. And okay, so he's got a little statue in his backyard that he thinks is God. Everybody's got to have a way to communicate with God. There is only one name. There is only one way. There is only one kingdom. There is only one king. This is the call of the church. You see, the world is happy to have all the accoutrements of God. Happy to have all of the tangential natures of the church. They're happy to have authority and people that are respectful and people that are kind and people that are nice and that bring them casseroles. But they don't want to be told what they need to believe. They don't want to be told they are not in charge of their life. They don't want to be told they will be accountable for their actions. And you see, Daniel 2 tells us this. Because Nebuchadnezzar is happy to acknowledge God as a God of the gods. But not the only God. You see, he wants to add God to his list of deities. He wants to tack him on. And the God of heaven will not have that. What should our response be then? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the first and most important thing is to remember that we already belong to the kingdom. When was this kingdom established? During these kings. It was going along with these great empires. And when did the rock strike the statue and destroy the world system forever? But in the time of Rome. And what was this rock that was small and uncut and of significance. Was it God's army? How did God do away with the world system? Did He send down legions of angels on winged beasts, hurling lightning bolts and making everyone cower in fear? No. He sent a baby who was born 
and placed in a manger. Whose parents had to flee to a foreign country. Because a wicked king, who was less powerful than the least powerful of the governors of this mighty king of Babylon, sought his life. He was a man who walked and talked to harlots, tax collectors, lepers, cheats, liars, miserable sinners like you and me. That's how the kingdom of God is established. The kingdom of God is established by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this kingdom explode in the book of Acts. We see it as a kingdom that is unshakable. It is a kingdom that is unstoppable. And we are a part of that kingdom. We are not waiting for it to come. We're waiting for the consummation. But we are not waiting. We are not orphans here now. God is in control right now this very day. I don't care what legislation they pass in the Senate. I don't care what the Chinese government does. I don't care if the kingdom of Iran gets nuclear weapons. God is in control. You are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And none of these other petty kingdoms of man can stop it. Ever. When your hope is in that, you don't worry so much about your tax rate. You don't worry so much about a Medicare cut. You don't worry so much about whether the troops will be able to triumph quickly in Afghanistan. It's not that we ignore what goes on in the world, but all of that is put in perspective. All of that is not our hope. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are already in the kingdom and we have assurance that the kingdom has already triumphed. The stone has struck the statue. The statue is obliterated. The kingdom of man has been shown to be the weak, miserable, unauthoritative thing that it is. How does this make you feel? Some of you watched college football yesterday. Some of you watched your teams win. What did you do after they won? Okay, I guess I'll go about the rest of my day. Right? Ladies, is that what you heard from your husbands? Or did you hear more of this? Yeah! All right! Right? Kids, when you get back a quiz you thought you did very poorly on and you get a 95, what do you say? Oh, that's good, I got a good grade. All right, high fives! We're excited! If you can do that about a silly football game or a quiz, how can that not be your reaction to the victory of the kingdom of God? Does everyone you meet know that you are part of the kingdom and the kingdom is advancing and that is the best thing the world has ever seen? Does it beam off your face? Just like People that know where you went to school and they see you Saturday evening and they say, oh, oh, you must be a UT fan. They won big. Do they look at you and they say, why are you so excited? You're excited because the triumph of the kingdom is there. This should be our focus. Our focus should be on the Lord Jesus Christ and on His kingdom. And when the focus is there, Everything else gets put into place. And that's why God has revealed this mystery of the image.
It's not so we can have speculation and Bible interpretation wars. It's so that we can know that Jesus Christ is the only king and we are in his kingdom and we are marching together to see it established in this world. 